let me begin us with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night and for the gift of this book. We pray that as we walk through these remaining chapters in mere Christianity, that you would continue to use Lewis's words and his scriptural truth to draw us more and more deeply into the things of your kingdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that through your Holy Spirit, you would be transforming us more and more into the image of your son, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So I'm very happy to see all of you uh, with us tonight, and we are uh, going to be zooming through not one, not two, but three chapters tonight. Uh, one of them is a pretty short chapter, so uh, I'm hopeful that we will be able to get through all of that and uh, that it will be a blessing to you. So as usual, let's start by saying together our scripture verse from Second Peter, and I would invite you to join me in this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you and the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And if you've been paying attention or scuba diving, you'll notice that different parts of this passage uh, get picked up on by Lewis in different uh, sections of mere Christianity. And that whole partakers of the divine nature is exactly what he's talking about in this Zoe kind of life, that life that Jesus talks about in John 10, 10, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And as we said before, the New Testament uh, uses two different Greek words that are translated as life. One is bios, which means our biological life and the life of flowers and animals and all that. But that the life of God, the life of the Trinity, the life of the kingdom of heaven is that uh, supernatural life that is called Zoe. So for those of you who are new, uh, just a word about how to approach this class. Uh, you can be on the beach, which means you just listen, put this on in the background while you make dinner or you read a book or whatever. Um, and you're not really going deep. You're just sort of getting something through osmosis. And that is perfectly fine. Do not feel bad. Don't feel obliged to read. We're just glad to have you. Or you can snorkel, which means that you are uh, going deep on those things that you want to get under the water and look at more closely. Uh, that is great if there are things that you find of interest and then you want to go back to the beach, all good. Or you can scuba dive, uh, you can go deep on everything, you can read the extra books, you can watch the movies, listen to the songs, contemplate the lyrics, all of that. And I have to say, it's, I'm sorry Miss Emma's not here um, tonight, but she was telling me last week that she actually read Athanasius's treatise on the incarnation and that it was a blessing to her. So uh, those of you who have been on this class from the beginning will remember that that was a highly recommended book for scuba divers. Uh, we're gonna be back to the incarnation tonight. So uh, for those of you that are new, again, how to read this book, uh, please don't try to catch up on the whole book in one sitting. Uh, read aloud, read one chapter at a time, um, and remember the C.S. Lewis doodle as something that can be a great resource, um, particularly in some of these chapters uh, in this book four that are a little bit abstract. Um, the C.S. Lewis doodle, uh, if you're having trouble with any of these chapters, that is a great resource to go to. So um, for tonight's music, we will see if I can get this to play. There always is a little bit of a challenge with that, but listen to this. If you think you know what it is, uh, please come back and uh, let me know what you think it might be. You can send me a chat if you think you know. 
Okay, so Jack Cahill gets the prize uh, for guessing not only that it is Omanium Mysterium, but also getting the composer, uh, Morton Lawrenson. So good job uh, on that, Jack. Um, that piece is one of my very favorite uh, choral compositions, and it is particularly appropriate uh, for us this evening because Omanium Mysterium uh, is an ancient uh, text that's part of the Christmas Matins liturgy um, from the early Middle Ages. And the text, uh, loosely translated, starts off, a great and sacred mystery and sacrament that the Lord should be seen by animals and be born in the manger of the Virgin Mary. And he's trying, and whoever the author of those words, he's referring back to Isaiah and to Luke, um, but just the whole wonder, the incredible mystery of the incarnation. And uh, there's a great line uh, that also references this from uh, the poet William Butler Yeats when he talks about the uncontrollable mystery on the bestial floor uh, from the uh, poem, The Wise Men, uh, The Magi. It's just, it's an amazing thing to think about the creator of the worlds taking flesh and coming into our world. So we're gonna come back to that uh, later on. So just a quick review of context. Uh, we are still in book four in England in wartime. Uh, and I wanna just do a little plug here uh, for Atlantic Crossing, which is on PBS right now. Uh, it gives you a sense of the attitude um, and the fears in Europe and World War II that are very real about the end of the world as we know it, as the REM song goes. Uh, but this context is so important. And Lewis is right in the thick of World War II um, as he's doing the talks that these chapters are based on. And we talked about these first three books, uh, Lewis doing basically an apologetic here, uh, trying to talk about why uh, the Christian faith makes sense, what Christians believe, and then how Christians should act and conduct themselves. And then in this fourth book, trying to tackle some theology, uh, some things that are maybe a little bit mind stretching, but as Lewis says, it's very important to try to love God with your mind and to understand theology. Because he says, most of us think that if we don't wanna bother with theology, that it's too complicated, that we'll do just fine sort of me and Jesus against the world. But Lewis says the problem with that is that instead of not having theological ideas and thinking that we're just fine, that we actually will have theological ideas and they'll just be wrong. So it is uh, better to try to uh, learn and to, uh, even when it is ultimately a mystery, to try to learn and understand what we can, that it might enhance our adoration and sense of wonder. So we talked about how this uh, fourth book came to be. Uh, it was not necessarily uh, predicted that this fourth book would happen. Lewis thought he was done uh, after the first three, but the BBC kept coming <laughs> after him um, and they were very persuasive. And so Lewis agreed to do this series, even though he was unbelievably busy uh, with work in Oxford during this time period. This is truly self-sacrificial service that Lewis is doing in this writing. And he was not very pleased when in the midst of this self-sacrifice, the BBC switched his time slot. So he had to take a train in the evening and didn't get home till Oxford until 3 a.m. And then he would have to uh, get up the next morning and have classes and his administrative duties as one of the officers of Maudlin College. Uh, and Eric Fenn at the BBC said, I'm so, so sorry. The powers that be just have said, there's no way around this. And I love this little quotation I keep sharing with you when Lewis wrote back and said, a pox on your powers. A talk at 1020 means catching the midnight train and getting to bed around three o'clock. If you know the address of any reliable firm of assassins, nose slitters, garroters, and poisoners, I should be grateful to have it. 
I shall write a book about the BBC. You see if I don't. Grr. Uh, it's just a great example of Lewis's sense of humor. So I want to just run quickly through the implications of the first couple of chapters of this book four. Um, these are not quite as sequential, the chapters not quite as sequential as they are in the other parts of the book. So the first uh, implication from chapters one and two, prayerfully lean into understanding your faith and the theology behind it, not just as good advice, but as life-changing and transformational. And I really encourage you, if you're scuba diving, get a hold of M.T. Wright, Simply Good News, Bishop Tom Wright, uh, one of the great New Testament scholars of the world, who's now at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, and his entire book is about how in the 20th century and 21st century, we have, as the church, dumbed down the gospel, and we have made it good advice rather than life-changing good news. Second thing, understand the difference between bios and zoe, and ensure that you're nourishing zoe daily, just as you do bios. Most of us are very good about making sure that we eat properly, or maybe not properly, but eat enough, uh, to keep our bodies going. But Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And when you think about the fact that we, most of us, eat three meals a day with some snacks, are we having that kind of time with God and God's word? Because that's what nourishes that Zoe God life within us. Third, the whole purpose for which we exist is to be taken into the life of God. And we need to cultivate habits to reinforce that reality, that that's what we're made for. We're made for a different kingdom. And that if we believe that we are headed toward our true home, which is with Christ and his kingdom, we need to be building habits that help us do that, that help us seek the things that are above, where we set our minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And to remember that we have died and our life is hidden with Christ and God. And again, for scuba divers, the uh, Terrence Malick movie, A Hidden Life, is just a beauteous uh, work of art that exhibits exactly what this statement from Lewis means. Fourthly, seek God together in deep fellowship with other believers. Lewis is militating in this chapter against the tendency of Christians to isolate, to think that we can do it on our own, that we can have our own personal relationship with God, um, kind of like our pet rock, and that we um, are fine without other believers. Other believers, it's complicated having to have relationships with people. And the scriptures know nothing of that. Um, the disciples are called individually, but they're brought into a group. And so uh, we are to be in deep fellowship with other believers. And as I've said before, not the Southern definition of fellowship, which means eating fried chicken in the church fellowship hall together. That means fellowship. That's a good thing and it's tasty, but real fellowship is talking and sharing about the things of the kingdom of God with other believers. So in the next part, um, some implications from chapters three and four that we talked about last time, cultivate an understanding that God's time and our time are not the same. Remember that scripture tells us a thousand ages in God's sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. And of course, Lewis plays with this uh, in the Narnia stories where you see that the time in Aslan's country is different than the time in Narnia. And the time in Narnia is different from the time on earth. And then secondly, to consciously embrace and maintain an eternal kingdom perspective, remembering that the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then thirdly, draw near to the life-giving fountain of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all these great verses from Hebrews that say over and over again, draw near. It's that beautiful invitation to draw near. And as you remember from last week's chapter, Lewis has that beautiful section where he says, if you want the warmth of a fire, 
you have to draw near to where the fire is. If you want the cooling spray of the fountain on a hot day, you must draw near to where that fountain can reach you. If you want to have eternal and joyous life, you must draw near to the thing that has them, which is the Trinity, that fountain of love and relationship that Lewis likens to the greatest and most joyous and beautiful dance that we can imagine, that is at the center of all creation and overflowing life and beauty and truth and goodness uh, out from itself because it overflows because that is its nature. And that as we draw near, um, we are covered with that as well. And then this great quotation from the old Puritan theologian, John Flavel, all that delights you in earthly things can never satisfy you for all of your desires are in God. The comforts you have here are only drops in flaming, not satisfying the appetites of your soul, but the lamb will lead you to fountains of living water. That is a passage you could reflect on for quite a while. Uh, there's much beauty there. So uh, this evening, we are gonna move into chapter five, uh, which has the great title, The Obstinate Toy Soldiers. And if any of you um, have ever been to England and been to Buckingham Palace or any of the other royal estates and gone in the gift shops, you have seen the kind of toy soldiers Lewis is talking about. These are not your kind of plastic G.I. Joe, cheap American, well, American toys made in China, um, but these are works of art, uh, beautifully painted metal soldiers that are about this tall, maybe three inches, but they're hand painted. They usually have on beautiful uniforms. Some of them have swords. Some of them have drums and flags and all of that. That's the kind of toy soldier Lewis is talking about. And he starts off with this great quotation, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's not a bad gospel in a nutshell right there. He says, we do not know, anyway, I don't know how things would have worked if the human race had never rebelled and joined the enemy. Perhaps every man would have been in Christ, would have shared the life of the son of God from the moment he was born. Perhaps the bios or natural life would have been drawn up into the Zoe, the uncreated life at once and as a matter of course, but that's guesswork. You and I are concerned with the way things work now. And the present state of things is this, the two kinds of life are now not only different, they would always have been that, but actually opposed. The natural life in each of us is something self-centered, something that wants to be petted and admired, to take advantage of other lives, to exploit the whole universe. And especially it wants to be left to itself, to keep well away from anything better or stronger or higher than it, anything that might make it feel small. It's afraid of the light and air of the spiritual world, just as people who have been brought up to be dirty are afraid of a bath. And in a sense, it's quite right. It knows that if the spiritual life gets hold of it, all its self-centeredness and self-will are going to be killed. And it's ready to fight tooth and nail to avoid that. Did you ever think when you were a child, what fun it would be if your toys could come to life? Well, suppose you could really have brought them to life. Imagine turning a tin soldier into a real man. It would involve turning the tin into flesh. And suppose the tin soldier did not like it. He's not interested in flesh. All he sees is that the tin is being spoiled. He thinks you're killing him. He will do everything he can to prevent you. He will not be made into a man if he can help it. What you would have done about that tin soldier, I do not know. But what God did about us was this, the incarnation. The second person in God, the son, became human himself, was born into the world as an actual man, a real man of a particular height, 
with hair of a particular color, speaking a particular language, weighing so many stone or pounds. The eternal being who knows everything and who created the whole universe became not only a man, but before that a baby, and before that a fetus inside a woman's body. If you want to get the hang of it, think how you would like to become a slug or a crab. The result of this was that you now had one man who really was what all men were intended to be, one man in whom the created life derived from his mother allowed itself to be completely and perfectly turned into the begotten Zoe life. The natural human creature in him was taken up fully into the divine son. Thus, in one instance, humanity had, so to speak, arrived, had passed into the life of Christ. And because the whole difficulty for us is that the natural life has to be, in a sense, killed, he chose an earthly career which involved the killing of his human desires, um, misunderstanding from his own family, betrayal by one of his intimate friends, being jeered at and manhandled by the police and execution, executed on the cross. And then after thus being killed, killed every day in a sense, the human creature in him, because it was united to the divine son, came to life again. The man in Christ rose again, not only the God in Christ. That is the whole point. For the first time, we saw a real man. One tin soldier, real tin just like the rest, had come fully and splendidly alive. And here, of course, we come to the point where my illustration about the tin soldier breaks down. In the case of real toy soldiers or statues, if one came to life, it would obviously make no difference to the rest. They are all separate, but human beings are not. They look separate because you see them walking about separately, but then we are so made that we can see only the present moment. If we could see the past, then of course it would look different. For there was a time when every man was part of his mother and earlier still part of his father as well. And when they were part of his grandparents, if you could see humanity spread out in time as God sees it, it would not look like a lot of separate things dotted about. It would look like one single growing thing, rather like a very complicated tree or rather like DNA. Every individual would appear connected with every other. And not only that, individuals are not really separate from God any more than from one another. Every man, woman, and child all over the world is feeling and breathing at this moment only because God, so to speak, is keeping him going. Consequently, when Christ becomes man, it is not really as if you could become one particular ten soldier. It is as if something which is always affecting the whole human mass begins at one point to affect that whole human mass in a new way. From that point, the effect spreads through all mankind. It makes a difference to people who lived before Christ as well as to people who lived after him. It makes a difference to people who've never heard of him. It is like dropping into a glass of water, one drop of something which gives a new taste or a new color to the whole lot. But of course, none of these illustrations really worked perfectly. In the long run, God is no one but himself. And what he does is like nothing else. You could hardly expect it to be. And what Lewis is trying to get across here, just to pause for a moment, is the incredible significance of the incarnation. Jesus descending from heaven, emptying himself of everything being born of a human mother, and by that birth, drawing all of our humanity up into that everlasting fountain of life and the Trinity, and then through his death and resurrection, completing that journey uh, in such a way that is miraculous, that this new life is shared 
not only in the resurrected Jesus, who is the first fruits of this new life, but in all of us who know him and are in relationship with him in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. So Lewis then goes on to talk about what difference does this really make? Well, it's just this, that the business of becoming a son of God, of being turned from a created thing, like a statue, into a begotten thing, of passing over from the temporary biological life into timeless spiritual life, has been done for us. Humanity is already saved in principles. We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. Uh, just as an aside, it's like a gift that has been given to us, a beautiful and complete and beautifully gift wrapped package with a big bow on it. But that package, if it just sits under the Christmas tree and is never opened, doesn't do us any good. We individuals have to appropriate that salvation. But the really tough work, the bit we could never have done for ourselves has been done for us. We have not got to try to climb up into spiritual life by our own efforts. It has already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it was fully, sorry, I can't read that because of the Zoom, uh, that, the, that one man who's fully God is also a real man. He will do this in us and for us. Remember what I said about gut infection. One of our new race has this new life, and if we stay close to him, we shall catch it from him. Of course, you can express this in all sorts of different ways. You can say that Christ died for our sins. You may say that the Father has forgiven us because Christ has done for us what we ought to have done. You may say that we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. You may say that Christ has defeated death. They are all true. If any of them do not appeal to you, leave it alone and get on with the formula that does. And whatever you do, do not start quarreling with other people because they use a different formula from yours. Just to pause again, one of the things that I think is such a great illustration of this that Jeff Miller, our rector, likes to quote is the passage in Ephesians that says, but you were dead, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. Dead people can't do anything. They cannot climb up, they can't do anything. They are without hope. And the next two words in that passage from Ephesians are perhaps the most important, but God, but God. Even though we were dead, God through Jesus is able to bring these dead men, these 10 soldiers and convert them, take that 10 and convert it into flesh and not just flesh, but that eternal God Zoe life that Jesus is the first fruits of. So in the next chapter, Lewis responds to two things um, that were naturally um, not in the broadcast talks, but where he received letters from people after the talk on chapter five, and he wanted to address these two points. So we're gonna hit on those just briefly. So the first one, in order to avoid misunderstanding, I here add notes on two points arising out of the last chapter. One sensible critic wrote asking me why, if God wanted sons instead of toy soldiers, he did not beget many sons at the outset, instead of first making toy soldiers and then bringing them to life by such a difficult and painful process. One part of the answer to this question is fairly easy. The other part is probably beyond all human knowledge. The easy part is this, the process of being turned from a creature into a son would not have been difficult or painful if the human race had not turned away from God centuries ago. They were able to do this because he gave them free will. The difficult part is this. All Christians are agreed that there is in the full and original sense only one son of God. If we insist on asking, but could there have been many we find ourselves in very deep water. Have the words 
could have been in any sense at all when applied to God. You can say that one particular finite thing could have been different from what it is because it would have been different if something else had been different and that something else would have been different if the third thing had been different and so on. But of course, this is all guesswork. And sorry for those typos there, but the, the point that Lewis is trying to make here is that who knows the mind of God? If we ask why God might've done something differently, in some ways that is a pointless and inscrutable question because God is God and we are not. So the second thing, the idea that the whole human race is in a sense one thing, one huge organism like a tree must not be confused with the idea that individual differences do not matter or that real people, Tom and Nobby and Kate are somehow less important than collective things like classes, races and so forth. Indeed, the two ideas are opposites. Things which are parts of a single organism may be very different from one another. Things which are not may be very alike. Six pennies are quite separate and very alike. My nose and lungs are very different, but they are only alive at all because they are parts of my body and share its common life. Christianity thinks of human individuals not as mere members of a group or items on a list, but as organs and a body, different from one, one another, and each contributing what no other could. When you find yourself um, with your, and again, I can't read that because of this Zoom, uh, trying to convert people, I think, or your neighbors into people exactly like yourself, remember that God probably never meant them to be exactly like you. They are different organs intended to do different things. On the other hand, when you are tempted not to bother about someone else's troubles because they're no business of yours, remember that though he is different from you, he is part of the same organism as you. If you forget that he belongs to the same organism as yourself, you will become an individualist. If you forget that he is a different organ from you, if you want to suppress differences and make people all alike, you will become a totalitarian. But a Christian must be not either a totalitarian or an individualist. Now, obviously, much of this is very relevant in our particular cultural moment. And I want to just share with you one analogy um, from Lewis's great friend, J.R.R. Tolkien. And some of you will remember that when Lewis was uh, what Tolkien called a silver-tongued atheist, uh, Tolkien really invested in Lewis's life and helped lead him to the Christian faith. And they had this memorable walk on Addison's Walk at Oxford uh, late into the night uh, where they talked about myth and the true myth that actually happened, that Jesus, the dying God, actually left footprints on this earth and that it was all true historically um, as well as theologically. And after that, Tolkien wrote Lewis a poem. Uh, and in that poem, he has a beautiful image of what it means to be made in the image of God. And he talks about how God is the uncreated light, the single white beam of light. And then he goes on to say that that beam, when it is refracted, shoots through so that it makes this beautiful spectrum of every color that there is. And every little dot on that spectrum is slightly different and a slightly different color. But each one of those dots is a perfect reflection of God. And that it is a reflection of part of God's image. But when you take all of those dots together, they make up the fullness of the image of God. And Tolkien is saying that that is the way humans are. Each one of us is a different spot on that spectrum. We each reflect the image of God, although through a dirty mirror because of original sin, but that we all need one another and that without all of us together, without all of the body of Christ, we cannot be complete. And this whole idea 
of not treating people just based on a class or a race um, is so important. And it's one of the big problems uh, with critical race theory for Christians. It is part of the reason that that is uh, contrary to the good news of the gospel and the understanding of original sin. But I'm not going to go off on that. Uh, let's go to chapter seven, let's pretend. May I once again start by putting two pictures or two stories rather into your minds. One is the story you have all read called Beauty and the Beast. The girl you remember had to marry a monster for some reason and she did. She kissed it as if it were a man. And then much to her relief, it really turned into a man and all went well. The other story is about someone who had to wear a mask, a mask which made him look much nicer than he really was. He had to wear it for a year. And when he took it off, he found his own face had grown to fit it. He was now really beautiful. What had begun as disguise had become a reality. I think both these stories may in a fanciful way, of course, help to illustrate what I have to say in this chapter. Up till now, I've been trying to describe facts, what God is, who God is, and what he has done. Now I want to talk about practice. What do we do next? What difference does all this theology make? In other words, what actions should proceed from these premises? It can start making a difference tonight. If you are interested enough to have read thus far, you're probably interested enough to make a shot at saying your prayers. And whatever else you say, you will probably say the Lord's Prayer. Its very first words are our Father. Do you now see what those words mean? They mean quite frankly, that you are putting yourself in the place of a son of God. To put it bluntly, you are dressing up as Christ. If you like, you are pretending. Because of course, the moment you realize what the words mean, you realize that you are not a son of God. You are not a being like the son of God, whose will and interest are at one with those of the father. As Jesus said to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. But we, you and I, are a bundle of self-centered fears, hopes, greeds, jealousies, and self-conceit, all doomed to death. So that in a way, this dressing up as Christ is a piece of outrageous cheek. That's a Britishism. Outrageous cheek would uh, probably translate as extreme presumption. But the odd thing is that he has ordered us to do it. Why? What is the good of pretending to be what you are not? Well, even on the human level, you know there are two kinds of pretending. There's a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing. As when a man pretends he's going to help you instead of really helping you. This is the kind uh, that those of you that read the Peanuts comic strips will remember every year in the fall, Lucy holds the football and says she's going to hold the football for Charlie Brown so that he can run up and kick the football. And every year he says, oh no, you're not gonna trick me again because you always pull it away and then I trip and fall. And every year she says, oh no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to help you. And then of course um, she pulls it away again. This is the bad kind that Lewis is talking about. But there also is a good kind where the pretense leads up to the actual thing or what, where you are feeling particularly friendly when you're not feeling particularly friendly, but know you ought to be, the best thing you can do very often is to put on a friendly manner and behave as if you are a nicer person than you actually are. And in a few minutes, as we have all noticed, you will be really feeling friendlier than you were. Very often, the only way to get a quality in reality is to start behaving as if you had it already. 
That is why children's games are so important. They are always pretending to be grown-ups, playing soldiers, playing shop, but all the time they are hardening their muscles and sharpening their wits so that the pretense of being grown up helps them to grow up in earnest. And I wanna just pause here again for a moment to say how important this is. This idea of trying to do the right thing when we don't feel like it, to act in the way that the scriptures tell us even when we don't feel it, we are often told in our culture that that is inauthentic and that authenticity is the most important thing that you can have. And that's why it's okay if you're having a bad day, it's authentic to just vent and dump on people all the time. But that is not what the scriptures tell us. And Lewis is on to something here that it is very important that as we practice these virtues, as we practice what Christ commands us to do through an act of the will, he does not tell us to feel friendly. He tells us to be kind. That's an action, whether we feel like it or not. And this is so important for, uh, for us as adults, but it's also really important, this little throwaway line about children's games, this is one of the things we are in danger of watching it disappear right before our eyes without realizing it. And this is the training children um, to remember things, to play roles, um, to learn songs and things that um, they memorize that they don't fully understand, but they are forming, hardening those muscles and sharpening their wits. And I was so struck by this this morning. I went to a preschool graduation um, for our four-year-old grandson. And one of the really striking things, fortunately, this is a wonderful Christian school. One of the really striking things is the whole school all of these children age two through five have memorized all of these songs. And they're not um, particularly profound theologically, most of them, but they are songs about the major events of the church year where they talk about, you know, Mary had a baby. Uh, they talk about the stone being rolled away. They talk about the ascension they sing about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And do I think three-year-olds really understand that? No. Do I think they really understand when they sing the B-I-B-L-E, that's the book for me, I stand firm on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Do I think they really understand all of that? No, but it is exactly what Lewis is talking about here, that they are being framed. A framework is being built in their hearts and their minds to resonate with the truth of the scripture, to resonate with the church seasons, which of course the church seasons are just a proxy for the life of Jesus Christ and the major events in his life. So if you have children in your life, please think about these kinds of things of helping them to memorize, to learn songs, to learn scripture, even things they can't fully understand right now because you are building a framework. You are, if you will, helping them pretend um, and helping them dress up, which moves us to the next point. Now, the moment you realize, here I am dressing up as Christ, it's extremely likely that you will see at once some way in which that, that very moment, the pretense could be less of a pretense and more of a reality. You will find several things going on in your mind which would not be going on there if you were really a son of God, well, stop them. That's an act of will. Or you may realize that instead of saying your prayers, you ought to be downstairs writing a letter or helping your wife to wash up. Well, go and do it. You see what's happening. The Christ himself, the son of God, who is man, just like you, and God, just like his father, is actually at your side and is already at that moment beginning to turn your pretense into a reality. This is not merely a fancy way of saying your conscience is telling you what to do. If you simply ask your conscience, you get one result. If you remember that you are dressing up as Christ, you get a different one. There are lots of things which your conscience might not call definitely wrong, 
especially things in your mind, but which you will see at once you cannot go on doing if you're seriously trying to be like Christ. For you know, are no longer thinking simply about right and wrong. You're trying to catch the good infection from a real person. It is more like painting a portrait than like obeying a set of rules. And the odd thing is that while in one way it's much harder than keeping rules, in another way it's far easier. The real son of God is at your side. He is beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He is beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought, his Zoe, into you, this creature of earth, beginning to turn the ten soldier into a live man, alive with the life of the gods, life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. The part of you that does not like it is the part that's still ten. Some of you may feel that this is very unlike your own experience. You may say, I've never had the sense of being helped by an invisible Christ, but I often have been helped by other human beings. This is rather like the woman in the first war who said that if there were a bread shortage, it would not bother her house because they always ate toast. If there's no bread, there will be no toast. If there were no help from Christ, there would be no help from other human beings. He works on us in all sorts of ways, not only through what we think, again, I can't see that, um, our life through nature, through our own bodies, through books, sometimes through experiences which seem at the time anti-Christian. Uh, when a young man has been going to church in a routine way, honestly realizes he does not believe in Christianity and stops going, provided he does it for honesty's sake and not to just annoy his parents, the spirit of Christ is probably nearer to him than it ever was before. But above all, he works on us through each other. Men are mirrors or carriers of Christ to other men, sometimes unconscious carriers. This good infection can be carried by those who have not got it themselves. People who were not Christians themselves helped me to Christianity. But usually it is those who know him that bring him to others. I'm going to say that again. Usually, it is those who know him that bring him to others. And this brings us to why real fellowship matters so. That is why the church, the whole body of Christians showing him to one another is so important. You might say that when two Christians are following Christ together, there's not twice as much Christianity as when they are apart but 16 times as much. And I wanna just pause here for a moment. Those scripture verses that talk about speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we listen to that and we think, oh, isn't that nice? That sounds so spiritual. That's what they did back in the book of Acts, but we don't do that. Well, why not? Part of what Christ calls us to in the scriptures is a radical sharing of our faith life with one another. And I love the way that Lewis puts it here, showing him to one another, showing Christ to one another, sharing about what he's teaching us through his word, showing others what we're learning, where we're experiencing joy in our walk with him. Because when we see that and we hear it from another person, it expands exponentially and we are encouraged more and more to go deep in our walk with Christ. All right, there's a whole sermon there, but I'm not gonna go off on it. But don't forget this. At first, it's natural for a baby to take its mother's milk without knowing its mother. It's equally natural for us to see the man who helps us without seeing Christ behind him. But we must not remain babies. We must go on to recognize the real giver. It is madness not to, because if we do not, we shall be relying on human beings, and that is going to let us down. The best of them will make mistakes. All of them will die. We must be thankful to all the people who have helped us. We must honor them and love them. But never, never pin your whole faith on any human being, not if he's the best and wisest in the whole world. There are lots of nice things you can do with sand, but don't try building a house on it. And now we begin to see what it is that the New Testament is always talking about. It talks about Christians being born again. It talks about them putting on Christ, 
about Christ being formed in us, about our coming to have the mind of Christ. Put right out of your head the idea that these are only fancy ways of saying that Christians are to read what Christ said and try to carry it out, as a man may read what Plato or Marx said and try to carry it out. They mean something much more than that. They mean that a real person, Christ, here and now, in that very room where you're saying your prayers, is doing things to you. It is not a question of a good man who died 2,000 years ago. He is a living man, still as much a man as you, and still as much God as he was when he created the world, really coming and interfering with your very self in this moment, killing the old natural self in you and replacing it with the kind of self he has, at first only for moments, then for longer periods. Finally, if all goes well, turning you permanently into a different sort of thing, into a new little Christ, a being which in its own small way has the same kind of life as God. So there are two discoveries here, and I'm gonna rush through this. The first thing is that we begin to notice not just our sinful acts, but our sinfulness. Uh, we, when we come to our prayers and reckon our sins of the day, one of the things we'll notice is that there usually is a sin against charity. And we say, oh, I did that because I was caught off guard. Now that may be an extenuating circumstance. It would obviously be worse if what we did was deliberate and premeditated. On the other hand, Surely what a man does when he's taken off his guard is the best evidence for what sort of man he is. Surely what pops out before the man has time to put on a disguise is the truth. If there are rats in a cellar, you are most likely to see them if you go in very suddenly. But the suddenness doesn't create the rats. It only prevents them from hiding. In the same way, the suddenness of the provocation doesn't make me an ill-tempered man. It only shows me what an ill-tempered man I am. The rats are always there in the cellar, but if you go in shouting and noisily, they will have taken cover before you switch on the light. Apparently the rats of resentment and vindictiveness are always there in the cellar of my soul. Now that cellar is out of my conscious will's reach. I can to some extent control my acts. I can't control my temperament. And if what we are matters even more than what we do, and if what we do matters chiefly as evidence of what we are, then it follows the change I most need to undergo is a change that my own direct voluntary efforts cannot bring about. And this applies to my good actions as well. How many of them were done for the right motive? So often it is from a wrong motive. After the first few steps in the Christian life, we realize that everything which really needs to be done in our souls can only be done by God. And that brings us to something that's been misleading. I've been talking as if we did everything. In reality, of course, it's God who does everything. We and most allow it to be done to us. In a sense, you might even say it's God who does the pretending. The three personal God, so to speak, sees before him, in fact, a self-centered, greedy, grumbling, rebellious human animal. But he says, let's pretend that it's not a mere creature, but our son. It is like Christ insofar as it is a man, for he became man. Let us pretend that it is also like him in spirit and treat it as if it were a fact, as if it were what in fact it is not. Let us pretend in order to make the pretense into a reality. God looks at you as if you were a little Christ, and he wants to stand beside you to turn you into one. I dare say this idea of divine make-believe sounds strange at first, but is it so strange really? Is it not how the higher thing always raises the lower? A mother teaches her baby to talk by talking to it as if it understood long before it really does. We treat our dogs as if they were almost human. That is why they often become almost human in the end. So quickly, some implications. Cultivate a sense of wonder about the incarnation. Don't take it for granted. Listen to the music, think about verses like this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And then second, consider and rejoice in Christ as the first fruits of the new Zoe life. I would commend to you, um, if you have a concordance or even if you just have Google, um, to look up scripture about first fruits and look at it in the Old Testament of the, the first fruits of the harvest, but especially the New Testament about Christ as the first fruits of the new resurrection life. And I have a great book plug here for scuba divers, um, surprised by hope, also by N.T. Wright, Bishop Tom Wright, so great to help us understand the miraculous nature of Jesus's resurrection life and body that we will be drawn up into. Thirdly, practice a biblical appreciation for the diversity of God's creation and the body of Christ. And this familiar scripture verse about how the body of Christ has many members, and we have to realize that we are all one, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, men or women, no matter what race, we are all made to drink of one spirit, and we have many members, and we can't say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. The ear can't say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. We have to have each other to have all of what God has made us to be. And then consider daily what you're choosing to put off and put on. These very active verbs, put off and put on, are the same verbs that we would say for dressing up, for putting on clothes. And we're called to take that action to put on these things. Remember from our last class, putting on the whole armor of God. And here in Ephesians, to put off our old selves and to be renewed uh, in the spirit of our minds and put on the new self created after the likeness of God. And then in Colossians, put on as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And then fifthly, hunger for transformation. It is so easy to become content and stuck and comfortable right where we are. And what the scriptures tell us is we need to always be hungering for more of that Zoe life, to not be content with the life that we have in this world, but to hunger and thirst for that transformation that God wants to work in us. And this beautiful verse in Romans, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, which is a great lead in to this closing passage, which I would invite you to say with me. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Let us pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the miracle of the incarnation and that great holy mystery that you took on flesh, that you entered into your creation, were born of a woman, born in a manger, the uncontrollable mystery on the bestial floor. Lord, we thank you that you chose to enter our world, that you might bring us up with you into that beautiful and blessed fountain of life in the Trinity. Lord, we pray that you would so transform our hearts and our sight and our wills that we would become more and more like you, that we would hunger and thirst for your kingdom and for your word, that we might be beggars who are showing other beggars where to find the bread of life. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.